Welcome to Objection. Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa, and I am here with my co-hosts, Sarah, Matt, Emily, and Jasmine. How are you guys doing this lovely Friday? Good. Hey, speaking Pretty of good. Jasmine, uh, Jasmine, are you doing a tape sync today? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Perfect. Cool. Well, I'm doing good. I'm not doing a tape sync. <laughs> yeah. should, should we let the listeners in on, on the... Uh, inside baseball. A no, little, little no, we shouldn't. T- we shouldn't tell them our secrets. Come on, <laughs> gotta keep uh-huh. something to yourself, Matt. Something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sarah, how you doing? It's good to have you back on board. I'm good, thanks. It's like I just walked outside for the first time today before we started recording because I was like, I have to see the outside for two seconds. It's actually beautiful out. So I think everyone will be outside this evening if you can. Yeah, it's going to mm-hmm. be super cold this weekend, too. Did anyone else get like an alert on their phone? It's going to be like 20, 10 to 20 degrees colder than the average for this time of year in New York. Whoa. I know. Wow. I know. I'm thinking about making a big pot of chili tonight. Mm. Oh, that sounds so good. Right? Yum. Pot of chili. All right. So this week we'll be talking about junk food in Mexico, <laughs> climate change solutions on Governor's Island, hysterectomies being carried out by ICE, and saving animals through conservation efforts. So let's kick off today's episode with our local news. Sarah, take it away. All right. So this week I'm going to talk about local climate change solutions, which is a little bit different than the climate change news we've been seeing recently. So I felt like I wanted to share it. Um, So I'm going to talk about how Governor's Governor's Island and how focusing on bioregionalism can help mitigate climate change. Um, So bioregionalism can be defined as advocacy of the belief that human activity should be largely restricted to distinct ecological and geographical regions. Um, And I first started getting interested in bioregionalism and climate solutions. Uh, I read this book called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, which I highly recommend. Um, and I thought I thought it was going to be a self-help book for how to get off Instagram, but it instead proved to be um, an intelligent thought process on what productivity really means and how to shift focus your actual surroundings instead of just um, your social media toxicity, etc. Um, bioregionalism will always play a vital role in local news because it is by definition directly tied to what is around us. Um, bioregions, in contrast to just ecological regions, are human regions informed by nature, but with a social and political element. So in this way, bioregionalism is simply political localism with an ecological foundation. So the way that this ties into what I have to say is that in recent New York news on Monday, a rezoning proposal was put forth by the nonprofit called Trust for Governor's Island, according to the New York Times. There have been many different proposals over the years by universities and research foundations to rezone the island, but this one calls for the incubation of a new climate research center. Um, They're going to review it beginning next month, uh, but no company or client um, is in mind yet to run the operation. It's just um, something to be reviewed and put forth. So according to Claire Newman, who's the president and chief executive officer of the trust, the prospective climate center would offer public programs, offices for green tech companies and architecture and engineering firms, and it would be anchored by a university or research institute that would build and pay for its part of the campus. Um, On the Brooklyn Eagle, it stated that the center would also provide a central convening spot for researchers, advocates, 
innovators and students from around the globe focusing on climate change solutions, um, also offered, offering opportunities for public engagement, hands-on education uh, and programming and advocacy regarding climate and environmental issues directly to New Yorkers. So that's super interesting. Um, the CEO has also mentioned utilizing the island's history and open space for the project, which would bring what I was talking about before, bioregionalism into play um, as lawmakers and engineers would begin to turn a focus toward using local green space for local solutions. Um, the largest challenge they've talked about so far would be the ferry service, as I don't know if anyone's ridden the ferry lately, but it's not enough to bring that volume of people to Governor's Island on a regular basis. So they would have to sort of um, redo that. But I'm really interested in where the project goes because I think, I mean, maybe I just speak for myself, but I think as New Yorkers, we forget that the land we're on has an ecological and political history and that we can learn about that and use that information um, when it comes to ameliorating the current climate situation. Um, and I, I found a brief history of Governor's Island from The New Yorker, which, uh, as you might guess, isn't great. Um, before the early 17th century, the Lenape tribe used the island, which they called uh, Pegank or Nut Island, after its his hickory oak and chestnut trees. Um, and it was used as a fishing camp which is really interesting. And then in 1637, um, a Dutch overseer bought the island from the Lenapes for two axe heads, a string of beads, and some nails. So that's cool. Um, the Dutch government confiscated the land, now known as Nutten Island, the following year. And then in 1664, after the British captured New Amsterdam, the royal governor was given full rights to the island, hence the name. Um, for the past... Uh, seven years, the trust that I was talking about earlier has been using the uh, Governor's Island to uh, as hands-on environmental education for New York City school children and other visitors. Um, but this year they pivoted to concentrate on food production and have distributed more than 12,000 pounds of food grown on the island to New Yorkers struggling with the effects of COVID. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think it sounds kind of like you topic, I guess. But um, I'm wondering and hoping that the solutions that they're talking about won't just turn into a further enforcement of capitalistic consumption and or turning the space into like a theme park for profit uh, and might instead focus on healing the environment through local research. Um, but yeah, I thought that was an interesting climate news amongst the wildfires and all that's going on. That's super interesting, Sarah. Yeah, yeah happening right here. We don't even know what happens in New York. It's so such a vast city. There's so much going on. And I definitely I know. haven't even thought about Governor's Island since we've been on Coin. Oh, no, yes, exactly. Like <laughs> Yeah, like the GovBall, right? Like, I just think of it as like, we're all like, I don't know. The like kids who wear neon leggings, yeah. fake sunglasses. <laughs> um, can you, so can you talk a little bit more about how that ties back to that book you read? I think that's a really interesting like thread there, like the how to do nothing book. Yeah. I got super into the bioregionalism thing because I mean, the way that she writes it is super intelligent. So I urge everyone to go read the book, but I think it like, so basically she talks about how 
it's not really about how to do quote nothing. It's about how to do sort of, it's sort of like passive activism, not passive. That's not the right word, but like activism in the spot that you're in, instead of like trying to fix a problem that you don't know anything about. Um, but like looking around you and actually using the resources that you have, which I feel like some is something that New Yorkers are good at, but I feel like at the same time, we're not necessarily like super aware of like, well, I'm speaking generally, but the past and the history of New York, because we always, we think of it as being just the way that it always has been, or at least I do. Um, I don't think about like the land before it was like the city. Um, and I think it's interesting to go back to that and figure out what resources we currently have, what, what resources were there in the past, and then what resources we have now and how that can shape like what research we're going to do for, for climate change instead of just, I guess, I don't know, moving forward and building. It's more about the book is more about um, like restorative engineering. So there's a chapter about, they like take down a dam because that restores the ecosystem instead of like building. So I like that idea, even though I guess for this Island, they're going to build things on it, but I'm hoping that it'll be kind of a cool research opportunity. This is all like very like near and dear to me. So I like when I, I studied architecture in college and and the program I was in had a really big like landscape environmentalist like angle to it. And uh, we actually studied the High Line um, in New York City because uh, that was when it was getting turned into a park originally and what was interesting about the highline like it's it's almost like so far in the distance it's hard to remember that it wasn't always like this like path like this like really like developed sort of like above ground park right (laughs) what was that yeah like a like like influencer spot right yeah so like what the highline had been for decades was this abandoned above ground like railroad that was it was like it was this really unique example of exactly what you're talking about like what the environment would have looked like if people weren't there because it was just this like platform that was just like planted with like seeds that had literally just blown in on the wind and was just like <laughs> occupied by like whatever little creatures like got up there. And there's, there's a really cool book of photos of the people who were advocates for preserving it that came out because they would like illegally go up there and take photos and stuff. And it's, it's really interesting. Like the, the way it would look like these wild sort of grasslands, um, back then and there was one of the designs in the competition to actually um develop it and to keep it in place is like a i don't know because there would be there was some development necessary regardless and um they were arguing to leave it in that way like have it be I, i'm like losing all my words of for all like the environmental <laughs> like terminology because it was so long ago but like um have it be like the self-sustaining environment but they lost the competition because it's really hard to kind of catch people with that idea that like it's so it was like you know all these flashy images of the of the design that one is much easier for people to latch onto and to understand um but we ended up with with an environment that actually takes a ton of resources to preserve like it takes a lot of water and a lot of manpower to keep the highline looking like it currently does um which is kind of sad in some ways but i i yeah (laughs) but yeah this i love this topic I hope it doesn't turn into that kind of thing, just like a consumption space. I hope that they sort of follow through. Obviously, this is all sort of speculation right now, but we'll see what happens. Interesting. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for that story, Sarah. That's a really interesting thing to follow up on and consider there's more to New York than Brooklyn, right? <laughs> um, so we're going to take our first musical break today. Uh, we have a nice music mix for you. The first track comes from Alicia Keys, New Yorker, off of her newly released self-titled album. This song is called Authors of Forever. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We are lost and lonely people, and we're looking for a reason, and it's all right. So let's celebrate the dreamers. We embrace the space between us, cause it's all right. We're all in this boat together, and we're sailing toward the future, and it's all right. Forever and it's alright. Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. I hope you love that song because I really, really liked it. Um, and next up, we have our national news. Jasmine, what do you have for us today? 
Okay, so this is a story that is still developing. Um, the reporting that I'm going to be sharing with you was done by Tina Vasquez. She wrote an article for PRISM entitled Exclusive Georgia Doctor Who Forcibly Sterilized Detained Women Has Been Identified. So what's happening is there's a lawsuit that's alleging a doctor performed unwanted hysterectomies on women being detained by ICE. A complaint was filed on September 14th saying that women detained at the Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia were sterilized without their consent. The doctor who's accused of doing this is Mahendra Amin, who is based in Douglas, Georgia. He's also an immigrant himself, and he's affiliated with the Coffee Regional Medical Center and the Irwin County Hospital in GA. So organizations including Project South, Georgia Detention Watch, Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights, and South Georgia Immigrant Support Network filed the complaint on behalf of immigrants detained inside of ICDC, which is operated by a private prison company called LaSalle Corrections. So far, the organizations allege that five women were sterilized at the facility between October and December of last year, but that number right now is growing. So this article is from September the 15th. Dawn Wooten is a licensed practical nurse. She's an LPN employed by ICDC, and she's uh, been identified as the whistleblower. As most of us are aware, under the current uh, presidential administration, federal agencies have been targeting pregnant migrants as part of a zero tolerance policy, doing things like separating mothers from their newborns in hospitals, opposing abortion care for teen migrants and detaining pregnant migrants instead of releasing them. According to Wooten, the women in the facility do not appear to be consenting to get hysterectomies and they're also not receiving translation services when medical information is being given to them. There are nurses who try to communicate using Google or by asking another detainee to translate according to the complaint. In one instance in the complaint, a woman was given three different explanations as to what was being done to her body. Um, Prior to this allegation, Amin, the gynecologist, was once a co-defendant in a lawsuit in which he himself and other doctors had to pay over a half million dollars to resolve charges that they caused false claims to be submitted to Medicare and Medicaid. It's not clear what the doctor's uh, current agreement with ICE and ICDC is. And they did not respond to um, PRISM's request for comment about the doctor. In the complaint, um, Nurse Wooten said, when I met all these women who had had surgeries, I thought this was like an experimental concentration camp. Oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't the nurse. This is a detained woman who befriended those that had hysterectomies is saying this, that she thought it was like they were in an experimental concentration camp. In addition, the complaint alleges that this facility has been falsifying medical records, shredding immigrants' requests for health care, denying people HIV and cancer medications, and providing no protections against COVID-19. Dawn Wooten, the licensed practical nurse, has been corroborating those claims. So um, 
this is it was a shocking story and I, I encourage everyone to read um, Tina Vasquez's reporting on this issue. Uh, she also wrote another more recent article that's about um, what some of the migrants have been saying about the whistleblower that she wasn't in fact um, sympathetic or kind to them like she has a reputation for making fun of the women and being aware of these things happening for a long time but not stepping in um, and also as shocking as this is it's good to remember and it's pointed out in this article by Vasquez that this is just something that's in a very long history in this country of sterilizing women, um, well, people from certain groups that are considered undesirable. Um, we know the person who invented or was a pioneer of gynecology in this country, J. J. Marion Sims, would experiment on black women who were enslaved. There's the Tuskegee experiment. Uh, there's a long history of Latina women, like women in Puerto Rico, being experimented on and sterilized, Native women being sterilized in mass. So this just seems like the latest example of this policy of trying to forcibly control um, minority populations. Yeah, that's really rough. Um, I mean, it, it's just so, as you said, the history just jumps out. No, I'm sorry. I yeah. just said it's disgusting. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's just like you feel like the weight of, of all history hitting you all, all at once when you get to that level of calculated uh, malpractice, malintent, um, uh, calculated uh, diminishment of budgets, like just about everything that can go wrong uh, intentionally and unintentionally has been occurring at the borders with the border. Absolutely. And we haven't really had, um, we haven't really reported on the story about the, uh, what was happening with ICE at the borders in a couple of months now. We were following along for quite some time. So um, yeah, I mean, it's just awful. If this is even something we're talking about. Can you hear me? Yeah, you were cutting in and out a little bit, but I hear you now. Okay. I was just basically yeah. saying the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just awful news. Yeah, and there, there's still there's still a lot that needs to come out more. Like there's going to be um, further investigation of these charges because we don't know the full extent of how many people have been subjected to this. Um, there are people that know and like the physician that are trying to vouch for him having been a good doctor. And, you know, things are looking a little bit murky with the nurse and like what she may have been complicit in before deciding to come forward. But, you know, it's just a reminder, like this is just the tip of the iceberg of what's happening in these facilities. You know, like you these are people that have a very difficult time like getting their stories out to the public and this is just a little window into what we know is happening like imagine how many people you know we don't we won't know you know this is just one facility in georgia like how many other facilities are there things like this happening to people and children being separated and they'll never see their family again 
terrible. And it's the, I hadn't heard that. Um, like I, I had been seeing a lot of stuff on social media, praising the nurse who came forward for her, like her bravery, knowing that it's going to make her a target from certain forces. Um, but I hadn't heard the, the, the investigation was also centering on her a little bit. That's, it's really interesting. And I think important in some ways I, cause I think, I don't know. It's a good reminder that there might not be, you know, there might not be any heroes in this story, right? That like, there's just bad stuff happening and it needs to get fixed. Yeah. It's not, it's not, she's not being, um, she's not like the target of the investigation, like the doctor is, but, um, this journalist Vasquez, she was able to speak to migrant women that knew this nurse personally Mm-hmm. So they were just sharing with her like their experience of this person and her not really mm-hmm. being um, like a friend to them or not being helpful before this time. And also, like, how could you do your job correctly anyway in that setting? Right. It'd be it'd be impossible to, <laughs> you know, just to, like to work in a facility that is that is just so, you know, it's like if you want to do be a medical facility that doesn't violate human rights, it needs to be at higher standards than, than what they've set up. And also the aftercare for these women that are going through this. I mean, it could take forever for someone to heal from a hysterectomy, the, you know, the damage that it causes in your body and not having the proper medical attention afterwards. Um, it's just really, it's, it's, it's just sickening to know that people's lives are being, just invaded, taken, just, oh, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, and then, yeah, the whole story in general, it's like how, like where, like the really, it just, the root of this is just, it just feels just, it's like, there is no excuse for it. Right. Like there is no good reason to do mass hysterectomies. It's just, it's mind blowing. Just like the depth of torture. It's torture. Yeah. It, wait, what? Sorry, Jaz- Teresa, you glitched out a little bit. I just, I just said that it's torture. Oh, torture. You know, we're yeah. literally watching Absolutely. them torture people right here for no reason. It's no. Ugh. Well, I, I would say it's not something that is. It, it, there is a reason behind it, and it's it's basically like eugenics. You know, like the yeah, reasoning exactly. is that certain people deserve to exist in this country according to these people's mindsets mm-hmm. and certain people do not deserve to exist. So when you look at the history and its recent history, um, I'll share the link on our Facebook page and mention it in the next episode if I remember. But you can look at records in your state locally to see you know how long eugenics program programs were run and people would be systematically sterilized because they were disabled or they were thought to be disabled or immoral or they were black or they were poor like there's such a long history of that and there's also people that casually make comments that like oh if if you don't have this or if you don't have that you shouldn't be having kids like that's a eugenics mindset, you know, and the whole idea that, you know, these people are coming to this country using our resources, quote unquote, like to talk like the administration does. That's the motivation behind it. They want people to be afraid. They want to limit their freedom and treat them like they're not human. So it's disgusting, but it's not like it's completely illogical. It's just the logic behind it is evil and it's eugenicists. 
Mm. Also, yeah. so hypocritical because I'm sure a lot of these people are pro-lifers, and it's like <laughs> the opposite. Like, right, and that that's also tied like has such a long racist history in this country as well. You know, because right. a lot of pro-life people, it's about pro-life for the right quote-unquote types of people. Like, they don't right. want. You know, there's many. Um, for those of you who don't know, listening, I'm black. And there's a lot of people who um, anecdotally talk about how quick doctors are to do hysterectomies on black women, whereas if you're white and you want one or need one, it's more of a struggle. Like people report more like, oh, but you might have kids, you know, and that's something that happens a lot you know it's like forced Mm. birth control or sterilization on certain populations because you feel like oh like certain types of good people are being outnumbered you know so it's it's just it's so transparent and so white supremacist like at its core and this is just the result of that um i'd just like to add that charles Lindbergh who was a Nazi sympathizer and a massive eugenicist, coined the term, or he had a big America First speech in 1941. And besides Donald Trump using America First as his tagline in the new Republican Party isolationist policy, has also been quoted multiple times talking about how he considers people like racehorses and that people come from good genes. And... You know, the the eugenic mind is, you know, the eugenic, eugenicist fad was less than 100 years ago. And it's unfortunately still very much. With it. It's very alive. And it, these are there's cases of people like through the 60s, 70s, and then maybe not in a formal program, but just, you know, if someone is prejudiced or biased against you and they're pushing you to become sterile you know, because they don't think you should be reproducing. Like, it's it's mm-hmm. happening every day. And I would just say to close, um, there's a PBS documentary that's about two hours, and it's very informative about the history of eugenics in this country called the Eugenics Crusade. Um, it's an independent lens episode. So if you're interested in watching and learning more, Google it, because like Matt was saying, like you see so many well-known names that people think of as like pillars of whatever in this country from decades past that were very, very into this and literally treating people, human beings, like they were breeding dogs or something. And, you know, we get to see the results of all of that propaganda. It's still very alive today. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for sharing that story with us. Definitely. Um, I mean, I wish I could say there was something we could do to fix it. The most we could do is talk about it and get the information out there. Um, obviously, urge the conversations around this topic and the story. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take another musical break before we get into the world news and a little bit of good news. This is a throwback track today. I, the irony um, <laughs> that this fits right into the topic we were just talking Uh, about. This is from one of my favorite wordsmiths and musicians, Gil Scott Heron, and the song is Home is Where the Hatred Is. We'll be right back. A junkie walking through the twilight I'm on my way home I left three days ago 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next up, we have our world news segment. Matt, you're up to the mic. All right. Do you remember my alliterative title? Uh, So dumb with so duh in Mexico. Uh, Junk, junk, (laughs) junk, junk food. You love alliterative titles, though. It's an unfair question. (laughs) Uh, it's just because I'm not clever enough to have it like an actual clever sentence. <laughs> um, I, I just learned that like the Germanic. Oh no, am I still here? I can hear you. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, maybe that was just God telling me not to go off on this tangent about like Germanic alliteration versus Romance languages that rhyme instead. <laughs> Okay, so this is uh, it's about Mexico, uh, taken from NPR and an article on BBC, quote from NPR. Oaxaca state legislature, legislature passed a ban on selling or giving high-calorie-packed foods and super-sweetened drinks to minors on August 5th. Less than two weeks later, Tabasco State approved a prohibition too. Now, at least a dozen other states are considering similar legislation, end quote. So why is junk food being banned for minors across Mexico? Well, like everything these days, it has to do with the coronavirus, which I found surprising. NPR writes, Quote, more than 70,000 Mexicans have died from COVID-19, two-thirds of those who died in Mexico had an underlying medical condition such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and cardiovascular problems, end quote. Um, maybe it should have said or cardiovascular problems, because otherwise that would mean someone that had all of those, um, which that would be a problem. Um Some critics say that the lawmakers are using the coronavirus as an excuse. They say they're exploiting the pandemic to get this law passed. And perhaps they are, though Mexico has 
the third highest death toll in the world. I'm not sure childhood obesity accounts for those deaths. If it truly was a coronavirus tactic, then the ban would apply to adults who are more susceptible to the virus. And even then, it would take a long time for the health benefits to materialize, presumably. I'm not sure. But what isn't in debate is the growing problem of health issues resulting from sugary drinks and junk food in Mexico. From the BBC, today about 73% of the Mexican population is overweight compared to one-fifth of the population in 1996, end quote. So even though this move may not affect how many people die in Mexico next week, it would, in the medium to long term, certainly help people and probably people exposed to the coronavirus um, as this virus is seemingly going to be sticking around. However, though government intervention to make healthier food available will go a long way, there still are economic uh, there's still economics to consider for those in the formal and informal economies of Mexico, the people that sell these tasty treats. Quote, at a time when the coronavirus prevention measures have crushed small businesses, uh, it is estimated that 150,000 businesses had to close during the pandemic, and it expects that many will not reopen, end quote. So let's zoom out just for a moment to see if laws like these work anyway before we get into a hubbub if we should do them or not. In 2014, when we should, if Mexico should, not us, um, in 2014, when the government imposed a tax on sugary drinks, the tax con contributed to a 6% drop in soda drinking in the first year. But like any program, the public needs to support it. And it looks like the public may actually be open to these new regulations on junk food. From NPR, quote, in rural Oaxacan, in the rural Oaxacan village of Villa Hidalgo, Yalhalag, citizens have physically blocked chips and soda delivery trucks from entering since April. They said they didn't want outsiders to bring in the coronavirus or junk food. Just kind of a wild story. NPR spoke to several teenagers in Mexico City and Oaxaca State and found almost all knew about the health problems related to junk food and agreed that change was needed. One said, quote, I'd be frustrated if I couldn't buy a Coke, uh, but I'd adapt and many and maybe I'd think twice and buy fruit or something healthy instead. So the question is, is now the wrong time to shake up parts of the economy, pissing off large companies with political ties? For example, our former president, Vincent Fox, once was the CEO for Coca-Cola. That's a pretty big political tie. Or because of the very clear display of the dangers of unhealthy foods with the sharp death toll in Mexico, is this the best time for such large changes? Um, yeah, so that's in Mexico. Kind of put this together quickly because I was a bit busy today. Um, when I was first looking into it, I, I was kind of wondering, um, sometimes you hear uh, like the whole wish list thing where like in, in the States, Democrats have been accused of like having a wish list of social programs and saying they're exploiting the pandemic to get all these extra programs. Um, 
which just seems kind of silly because like in this case, like people were saying like, oh, they're trying to jam this food thing down because the virus is happening and, you know, maybe it's unrelated, but it's pretty clearly that it is related. It's just like would take a little bit of time, but I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't really, um, haven't really digested all of the, uh, the thoughts behind this piece. Interesting. Well, I, feel like I mean, I a... guess. Go ahead, Teresa. Go ahead, Emily. <laughs> I was just going to say um, it could be a, a step in the right direction, but will it really even do anything? I mean, people will access what they want to have. And um, I don't know. I feel like when people put these sort of bands into people's lives, they kind of just counteract it, and do what they want to do. I think it, it, they had a good intention, but probably the wrong methodology to make it actually happen and help. I was going to say it's interesting because I I wonder if if there are issues with obesity and health problems related to diet are the same as ours, because a lot of ours stems from like socioeconomic inequality and access to healthier food items. And it's it's cheaper to get a lot more junk food, like more caloric junk food than it is to like get like, you know, a healthy amount of healthy food. Um and it's, there's it's, also yeah. there's also people like there's b- medical bias against people because they are fat as well, you know, and then it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like you're unhealthy because you're fat, but it could be something completely unrelated to that. But you're not getting the right treatment or you're too discouraged to seek medical help. Totally. Yeah. Like I uh, was reading this is anecdotal, but like there's there's definitely stories of doctors just ignoring patients who are slightly overweight or this much overweight, like who have like legitimate health problems and them saying, well, it'll go away if you lose weight, which is not always true at all. It could be like a legitimate underlying health problem that they're just choosing to not look into for sure. And people need help. They need help trying to lose weight. I mean, if they had that, if that was the easiest solution for them, they probably would do that, you know, but a lot of those other factors, like you said, social economic status and things of that nature really defines their choices and having to go outside of your neighborhood or, you know, just people need more education around the right choices and more access to the best things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That second part, like access to and and the supply chains and the of of things of like food, actual food, uh, banning uh, soda and and you know junk food i i don't i mean it's kind of weird because thinking of it as like uh have banning it to minors is just kind of a weird idea that we're not used to and i'm not sure i'm even because it seems kind of weird um but yeah if, if that's all you do then i don't know i mean i i do feel like a lot of like so a whole bunch of the uh states in mexico have been doing this like by themselves like one at a time so it seems like there's some momentum behind it, which is good because if it's like we have a public health uh, emergency of a whole bunch of people having like hypertension and diabetes and stuff and a bunch of kids having conditions that kids don't normally have, it's encouraging that a lot of people want to take it seriously. Um, let's just hope this isn't the last, you know, <laughs> this is all they do. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, sugar is right. a killer, right? All right. Absolutely. It's lethal. It's killing us all every moment. 
<laughs> one way or another. <laughs> Thanks. Your segues All are right. so well, good. Well, thank Teresa. you so much for that story, Matt. And I, I, I'm sorry. I thought you were done. People, we can't see each other. <laughs> <laughs> were you finished, Matt? I'm sorry. Did you have anything to say? No, no, no. I, I, I totally was finished. I, I was just, I was making fun of your kind of hilarious, dark ass. Um, sugar is killing us every moment. What'd you say? <laughs> I mean, it is though, if you think about it, um, it's killing us all slowly. Yeah. Um, I just sit here with a, with a cup of apple juice and I'm scared to drink it now. Okay. Alrighty. <laughs> so I, <laughs> um, I have an interesting world news story. It's, um, basically around the Netflix film cuties. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I actually clicked on it last week to begin watching it and I'm almost to the end. I had a stop and start situation, but anyway, the information from this story has come from uh, rollingstone.com, also USA Today, and The Guardian. Um, so a call to boycott Netflix on Thursday over the French film Cuties was launched this week on social media over claims that the young stars they were portrayed in a sexualized manner. The film was directed by French Senegalese director Mayamuna Decore and started streaming on September 9th. More than 200,000 tweets with the hashtag cancel Netflix became a top trending topic one day later. The film, which received the director's award at the Sundance Film Festival, tells the story of Amy, an 11-year-old Senegalese girl living in Paris who joins a dance group formed by three other girls from her neighborhood to escape the restrictions of her life. Um, though the director did not get into the specifics of the debate just yet, Cuties has become the focal point for faction of the far right that believe that believe a secret cabal of Hollywood liberals is operating a sex trafficking ring, and Cuties is further evidence of that. The controversy even spread far beyond these circles and reached a point where Senator Ted Cruz was calling for the Department of Justice investigation on the project. Uh, in a statement, Netflix said, quote, Cuties is a social commentary against the sexualization of young children. It's an award-winning film and a powerful story about the pressure pressures young girls face on social media and from society more generally growing up. And we'd encourage anyone who cares about these issues to watch the movie. End quote. Uh, Cutie's director um, defended her film in the Washington Post. She had this to say, I wanted to open the eyes of people to what's truly happening in schools and on social media, forcing them to confront images of young girls made up, dressed up and dancing suggestively and, and Im imitating their favorite pop icons. I wanted adults to spend 96 minutes seeing the world through the eyes of 11-year-old girl as she lives in a 24-hour day. These scenes can be hard to watch, but nonetheless um, true as a result. In her op-ed, uh, Decore explained how Cuties was inspired by countless conversations she had with young girls about how confusing puberty can be and the way that social media can exasperate the pressures that are placed on them. She also spoke about how the story is a reflection of her own life and how she was juggling the cultures of Senegal and France um, and the way that the scrutiny and judgment affected her growing up. So I did watch the film um, and my honest feedback was it was captivating. Quite honestly, I grew up in the U.S. You know, we didn't have social media back then, but there was pressure when I was in high school to look older you know, wear lipstick, wear more suggestive clothing, just to kind of explore a world that you have never seen before. I think what stands out in, in this film is that the girls are dancing. You know, the, the they're doing this sort of provocative dancing that we see happens in pop videos all the time. 
and they're recording themselves and, and posting it out. So the main character comes from a pretty strict um, Senegalese mother and her household. She's Muslim. So any of this sort of uh, dancing or interacting with one another is really looked down upon. So she hides that she's even connecting with these girls. But she's these girls are also like, you know, the group, the in group, the bully girls that are at her her school. So she's trying to fit in. She's trying to find her way. Um, but nonetheless, she ends up helping them to make their their dance like even better. And when they start posting it, they go viral. So the girl, actually, Amy, the main character, she goes through quite a bit because of what she's done. And um, yeah, it was a provocative story because you really don't realize the pressures that these young girls are facing. Anybody else seen the film or care to comment? No, I guess I wish we could go back and do like a spoiler alert. <laughs> Oops, sorry. Oops, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I just, I started watching it. I didn't finish, but I saw a lot of the... There was a lot of weird backlash because of the way Netflix sort of advertised it. That seemed unfair. Yeah, the advertisement mm-hmm. that they placed for the United States was different than that that was shared in France as well. Huh. What were the differences? The girls were dressed provocatively and dancing um, on the one that they posted here. And the other one showed them kind of just running out outside, being young girls. It just it just didn't give you the same image. Mm. I was um, I was supposed to interview this lady. There's a group called QAnon Casualties, um, and QAnon is the conspiracy group slash cult that thinks that Hollywood is and Democrats are have a pedophilic ring and the deep state and Trump can save us or whatever. And they're largely behind this this weaponization of the idea of pedophilia for for their own means, and it's it's been growing so big and and this lady i was supposed to interview today uh because her her husband has like gone off the deep end and it's kind of become like an abusive verbally abusive relationship physically he's like punched walls and stuff and so she's she's not in like a safe space and she can't move yet because of economic reasons um it's kind of like all of america's in this story right uh it's uh credit her credit was messed up from a previous marriage she got a ud at her previous place so getting a new place is is difficult um but she had to cancel because the her turns out her husband was going to be home when she was going to talk to me (laughs) and and you know it's just like living under that is really scary um i told her like hey i'm doing like a project like the project I'm doing is for a year from now. And so it's like, this is going to come out in a year. This is not important. I don't want you getting in any trouble for the sake of like this, like teeny podcast. Um, but there's a lot of people on, on Q and on casualties that talk about like their entire family and all these people getting really pulled into this conspiracy theory uh, in, in a way that's kind of frightening. And I'm hoping that it's not as bad as it sounds. Like I'm hoping that like, we're having a bit of a moment of hysteria and like people on the outside, like me think that it's bigger than it is. Um, But if it is as big as it seems, you know, multiple people are running for elected office who support QAnon um, conspiracies. Um, So it it looks like it might be a a reality. Wow. Well, there was some commentary to saying that this film kind of showcased that that's a possibility. I don't see how the two go together. Uh, considering it's the story of these young girls, you know, kind of going through puberty. But um, yeah, definitely an interesting topic. Um, 
that crossed the pond, if you will, and has become, um, yeah, kind of a, a eye-opening experience for people raising young children, young girls growing up right now. There's also, there's a few Black Muslim women who are cultural critics that wrote about the film. So I will be sure to link to some of their writings on our Facebook page so you can see it from that perspective. Because I think, you know, those are the opinions that matter the most. But yeah, it's... Hello? Do you know what they said? They were... I didn't read like all of them, but they were basically just talking about like how, like whether or not it was realistic from their point of view, like being like black Francophone women who grew up Mm -hmm. like from an African background in France. But it was more like um, there were so many people writing preemptively based off of a poster, these really ugly, nasty things about this Mm -hmm. woman's, this black woman's directorial debut and not having any cultural connect or not even watching the movie. So like, I just want to make sure that they get some of their clicks that people who, you know, their experience is what's in the film are the ones that are at the forefront with um, their critiques. Yeah, definitely. Well, I definitely encourage anybody to get, you know, watch it if you get an opportunity to. Uh, like I said, it was a provocative film, and, and nonetheless, you could be the judge. All right, so Emily, you want to throw us a little bit of good news before we close out today? Absolutely, I'd be happy to. Uh, a very a very little nice story. Um, so it comes from a September 16th article by Andy Corbley on the goodnewsnetwork.org titled, uh, Caring Conservation Programs Have Prevented At Least 48 Animal Extinctions, said study. So according to a new study by researchers from Newcastle University, uh, since 1993, 48 different animal species, birds and mammals specifically, have been saved by, from going extinct by various conservation efforts worldwide. Quote, according to the researchers' models, this coordinated effort by governments, academic institutions, nonprofits, and others prevented the rate of mammalian and avian extinctions from reaching levels 300 to 400 percent higher. Uh, some of the animals saved include uh, Przewalski's Pr- horse, <laughs> uh, which is it, the first name is a little hard to pronounce, but it's it's a, in Mongolia. So it went extinct in the wild in the 1960s, but now has a wild population of 760, uh, which is very cool. And then there's also the California condor and the Sumatran and Javan uh, rhinoceroses, rhinoceros, um, plural, not sure. Um, it's interesting to note that, quote, the study also found that different families benefited differently from different conservation strategies. Birds benefited from more invasive species control and habitats protection, while mammals were saved more by government legislating and zoo reintroduction programs. Uh, Phil McGowan, a co-author of the study, says, quote, the loss of entire species can be stopped if there is sufficient will to do so. And that's just my little story. Uh, There's a lot of news coming out recently about how many species we've lost or, you know, how much biodiversity is lessening around the world um, due to climate change and due to just all sorts of bullshit humans do. Um, So just a little, you know, a little note of not only hope, but a call to action that like this is it's within our ability to fix these problems or help prevent them from getting worse and that, you know, it works. So there you go. My little story. 
Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. We always need the good news, though. I appreciate yeah, the rhino, rhinoceroses being saved. I, me too. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I guess that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day comes from an English band called Disclosure, and it features the rapper Common. The song is called Here is Reverie. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Have a good week. Slipped into a reverie, I can see a better me. Things that's heavenly, like love and melody. Fly high, my wings propelling me to the heights of angels that dwell in me. These are the flights that I take with family. They keep me grounded by understanding me. I stand under the rain, it feels powerful. Same force that made all the flowers bloom. Same force we come from, me and you. Same force that made you so valuable. I say don't let the world take it out of you. I say don't let the world take it out of you. We living in times trying to hold on. Saying what's going on like the old song. People feeling naked with their clothes on. They want to go home, I tell them go strong. We need more doers Stay true to the one that run through us Hold on when they try to subdue us Old mind state, they never really knew us In the visions, reminiscing On our conditions, no pot to pissing We the children of a mission When freedom calls, we gotta listen